It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says scientists have proven that the Sasquatch, he is real. I am Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick and our other host Lauren Vogelbaum is not with us today. She is not feeling well, but she will be back with us next time. I like to think that she's hunting monsters right now. I'm sure she's that's doing. what she's doing. Yeah, in fact, that's what we're doing. Uh, see, we wanted to do a special... Halloween-themed episode, or two, or four. Maybe four. Well, while Jonathan was out, if you haven't heard them, we, uh, Lauren and I, decided we wanted to talk about monsters in the spirit of October, because we're all sort of horror fans around here. Yeah, yeah. But how could we talk about monsters on this podcast? Well, turns out there are a lot of ways we can. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we invited on our uh, friend Robert Lamb from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our sort of resident 
monster expert to come talk to us about the future of monsters. He's very good friends with Dr. Anton Jessup, who is uh is the such good friends it's disturbing. Yeah, truly disturbing. He's uh Dr. Anton Jessup, if you aren't familiar, is a an expert in monster science. Yeah. And so Robert Lamb decided to come over and uh do some episodes and I was very disappointed that I could not be part of them, although I must admit I was also having an amazing time at the simultaneously while those episodes are being recorded. Well, I'm sorry you couldn't be with us, too. But you can be with us on these upcoming monster podcasts. Uh, So the one we wanted to talk about today was monster hunting, because this is another thing that can sort of relate to science and technology. Yeah. There is a quest that many people have committed themselves to deeply in a heartfelt way to go out into the dark spaces of the world and find the monsters that linger. Yes, for there there be dragons. Well, there is sort of a sense that technology and its progress throughout the years has eliminated a lot of the strange creatures that we used to think existed. Right. But some people hold out hope. Yeah, I mean, I and I can totally understand that. So uh, as a kid, when I was in elementary school, I checked out, Every single book in our elementary school library that had to do with folklore, ghosts, aliens, and monsters. Mm-hmm. Those were those were like my go-tos. So much so that I read them more than once. I tell you what, when I was a child, I had my brain ruined by these documentaries on TV about the Loch Ness Monster and UFOs and stuff. Because I saw them presented in a documentary format that was pretty much the same as the format of stuff about, uh, you know, animals and and movie effects and all the other documentaries things like volcanoes or whatever. I just assumed, Oh, okay. It's just totally normal to believe in, uh, Sasquatch and Mothman, all all that stuff. Yeah. That's just part of the world. And it's an especially cool part of the world. Right. So why wouldn't I believe in it? Yeah. And I was, I was very much, I don't know that I fully believed in everything, but I knew I wanted to believe in them. Yeah. Uh, and we'll talk more about the psychology of, uh, of believing in monsters and hunting for monsters toward the end. But just keep in mind that as a kid, I was one of those people. And as I grew I, up, I was too. I was too. I think I, 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 as I, by the time I hit high school, I was already, Developing a much more skeptical view of the world. And I remember loving, uh, mockumentaries that had to do with <laughs> monster hunting. There was a uh, one called Phil and Arthur is a, a pair of British comedians who did a, uh, a Loch Ness monster special where they were uh, investigating the Loch Ness monster and absolutely parodying everything about Loch Ness monster investigations. Um, and I remember it came on the public broadcast station and we videotaped it. We had videotapes back in those days, kids. And, uh, so yeah, I have at my parents' house somewhere, there's a videotape that may or may not still be in playable condition. Um, uh, that was one of my cherished possessions because even as a high school student, even at that point where I had kind of decided to put away the belief in these things, I still harbored this fascination for it. So it didn't belief was not a requirement. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so beyond the realms of just wishing for these things to be true and liking the mystery and strangeness of the creatures, there are people who are really interested in the question of whether some supposedly existing strange animal is actually out there. Yeah. And they dedicate time to study something, but they're studying something for which there is no evidence 
or that at it least actually exists. The evidence is very shaky. Right. There's nothing like an actual specimen, for example, right. to study. So uh, it, it's it's a type of pseudoscience called cryptozoology. And the reason we call it pseudoscience is because they don't have that hard evidence to actually look into. Well, I want to hold up for a second here and, and be fair and say, I don't know if it's necessarily right to call it a pseudoscience. Now, I'm not going out and saying that I believe the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and all these creatures exist. I, I very much don't. But I think you could use the scientific method to look into questions of whether these creatures exist. Sure. And you could look for evidence. You could make hypotheses about what you'd expect to find if they did exist. You could test those and look for evidence and either find it or not. I think you could take a skeptical perspective to these questions. Oh, absolutely. And I say you should take a skeptical viewpoint to those questions. However, you could end up saying the same thing about cold fusion. That doesn't make it science. Unless you find the actual evidence to support it, it ends up being pseudoscientific. Now, if you find the evidence to support it, it, then you would have to say, all right, this is no longer pseudoscience. We can actually make observations. We can make predictions. We can test. We can replicate tests. Then that's truly the element of science. But if you're talking about, let's say, unicorns, that's if I sit there and I claim, like, I want to discover whether or not unicorns are real, well, all I can do is look for evidence for it. If right. I don't find any evidence for it, that doesn't necessarily mean that unicorns aren't real, right? It's, it means I can't find the evidence. Uh, if you look really hard and you can't find the evidence, they're probably not real. Probably, but you can't say with certainty. See, this is yeah. this is why we put it into the realm of pseudoscience, until there's actually direct evidence for these things. In which case, we no longer call it cryptozoology for that particular incident. We call it zoology because it becomes uh, an animal that we can actually or an organism we could actually study uh, until it reaches that point. Then it falls into cryptozoology, which because we can't actually point to evidence for it, we can't actually study an actual uh, example of it. We're just talking about things that are based on folklore, on uh, first firsthand or secondhand accounts of encounters with this stuff. Or maybe some unreliable media of it of some sort, then we can't really, you know, without the direct observation of it, we can't really call it a science. Hmm. Okay. I think we're agreeing on the substance, just maybe disagreeing on how we're using words. Sure. Uh. <laughs> well, I think if you ask any any like skeptical organization about cryptozoology, they would classify it as pseudoscience as opposed to science. But keeping in mind that if you were to find an animal that often gets lumped in under cryptids, these these hidden animals that we have not discovered an actual uh, sample of, then they would say, all right, well, then that that clearly falls into it. Like we like could say modern coelacanth. Exactly. Yeah. The coelacanth is a great example. Coelacanth is a fish that we had long believed to have gone extinct and then, of course, a fisherman caught one. And then the and the uh, hopefully the, it wasn't the only one. Though. Well, Phil and Arthur made that joke. They said, <laughs> "So there's a coelacanth, which people believe would have been extinct. Then a fisherman caught one, and now they are extinct." <laughs> no, that's not exact. That's not true. There are more coelacanth out in the ocean. Okay, Jonathan. Before yeah. we talk about the the technology and the future prospect for looking for monsters, we should talk about. What are the monsters that are on the table? What what do people believe is out there that we haven't actually verified yet? Well, cryptids come in all shapes and sizes. They some of them are are more quote unquote monstrous than others. Monstrous does not necessarily mean 
spooky, scary, nasty, mean, evil. It may mean that it's just uh, something that's that's incredibly unusual, large, uh, you know, something that is well outside the norm. But cryptids in general, that could be anything uh, that is believed to exist, but there's no proof for it. Yeah, that could be, you know, pretty much any kind of living thing, I should say, because this doesn't really fall into the realm of uh, the spiritual and ghosts and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, pretty much anything that was rumored to exist could fall into that category. Okay, so how about like the Loch Ness Monster? One of my favorites when I was a kid. Definitely believed in it then because, of course, you you saw that picture of the thing coming out of the water. The surgeon's What else could it be? Well, that was was probably (laughs) out of all the monsters that I read about when I was a kid. That was the one I held on to the longest. That was the one I was least willing to let go. Right. Like like if you think of my my progression into skepticism, the Loch Ness monster, Nessie, she was she was hard for me to say, all right, I don't really believe there's a monster in Loch Ness anymore. It took me a very long time. So uh, in case somehow you have managed to go through <laughs> your life without knowing about the Loch Ness monster, uh, Loch Ness is in Scotland. It's a lake in Scotland yeah. or a loch. It's a very Scotland. large lake. It is very deep. Yeah, it's extremely deep. It was formed by a glacier uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, it is uh, connected by lochs to um, to are you keep, rivers. Are you going to keep saying that's it that the way accent? it's said? OK, it's got the glottal stop there. So how um, did it end up with a dinosaur? In it? Because well, that's sort of the idea, right? That it's a plesiosaur like dinosaur y- yeah. monster. Yeah, they're different. There were always I mean, well, first you had to ascertain the fact that there's supposedly a monster there first, right? Yeah. And uh, the very first sighting goes all the way back to St. Columba, an Irish monk uh, in the in 6th century Scotland who supposedly oh. encountered a sea beast or at least a lake beast in the in the waters and then calmed it through uh, Christianity. I'm not making any of this up. This is all in in folklore. And then uh it does it, you people like knew he preached about, to the monster. Yeah. Okay. Essentially. Um, That's cool. And calmed it. It was a, some sort of sea serpent in the, in the story. But you don't really get any more stories about it until the 1930s. Uh, actually, 1933, there was a monster hunter named Marmaduke, <laughs> which named I named Marmaduke. His name is, it was Marmaduke. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was his first name. Um, so. <laughs> Marmaduke. Do we get a last name? Marmaduke Weatherell. (laughs) It's the best name ever, isn't it? I thought it was going to be like Marmaduke Rotel Dip. I don't know. Weatherell is pretty good, though. Marmaduke Weatherell. All right. So Marmaduke Weatherell had been hired by a a truly um, uh, historic and important journal. Uh, the Daily Mail to go to <laughs> to go and and look into reports that there was supposedly a monster in uh, Loch Ness, and so he went and discovered some tracks. Didn't find any actual like he didn't see the monster himself, but found some interesting tracks that were near the loch and uh, proclaimed them to be the actual tracks of a monster living in Loch Ness. And then it turned out that, in fact, those tracks had been made by a dried out hippopotamus foot, which was um, <laughs> at the time and at the time in, in all the rage, early 20th century England, hippo and elephant feet were used as umbrella stands. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Enlightened <laughs> times. Anyway, uh, he was more or less humiliated. Uh, and that is important for a little bit later in the story. Marmaduke, so, no. 1934. Uh, this is the time that we have the infamous surgeon's photograph of Nessie. Although, uh, Dr. Robert Kenneth Wilson, who was the, the person who supposedly took the image, was not actually a surgeon. He was a gynecologist, but it was always referred to as the surgeon's photograph. He, uh, had produced this photo that's the iconic image of Nessie, the one where you see a neck extending out from the lake with the head. And it's, you know, it looks like a plesiosaur, like our, 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 imagination of what a plesiosaur looked like. And so you see like a hump behind the neck and head. Yeah. Fortunately, there's, I think, nothing in the photograph to give it scale. Well, the the full photo makes it look like it's pretty tiny. But the f- image that you always see is a cropped image. Oh, okay. where it's, That's what I've seen. Yeah, the cropped image has it where you can't see any of the shore. You just see water. And in that case, you have no, no sense of scale, right? This thing could be enormous or it could be tiny. You don't know. Uh, in the full picture, it looks like it's a little smaller. You still don't have, it's still not close to the shore. So you can't be entirely certain exactly how big it is, but it looks like it would be smaller than what you would imagine a plesiosaur to look like. At any rate, uh, this photograph made huge news. I mean, it was incredibly successful. And uh, for many, many decades, it was held out to be a true, authentic photograph of a monster in the lake uh, until 1994. No. Yeah. A man named Christian Sperling claimed that, in fact, the image in the photograph was of a toy submarine that had been outfitted with a sea serpent neck and head and placed in the lake. The photograph itself was not taken by Dr. Robert Kenneth Wilson, but rather a certain Marmaduke Weatherell (laughs) who had been uh, been stung his pride stung by the treatment he had received from proclaiming the footprints to be authentic and then revealed that it was all a hoax and his reputation had suffered as a consequence. And he said, we'll give them a monster. And so um, he took the photograph, then gave it to Dr. Wilson as the person to actually proclaim he was the one who took the photograph, because obviously if Weatherall came forward, everyone would claim that it was a, a hoax in the first place. Right. Right. Because he had already been involved in this. You know, I want to go ahead and point out one thing that's going to be relevant to our eventual point in this episode, which is that I think the only reason a photograph like this remained a prominent piece of evidence for so long is how bad the photograph is. Yeah. Like that you could look at this and plausibly interpret it as a monster is a fact that is based on it being black and white, Mm -hmm. uh, being often, at least as I experienced it, always cropped and so not having any scale Mm -hmm. and being blurry, grainy, low resolution, that old timey photography. You don't have any any detail on the monster at all. You can't make out any features on the monster. Um, Yeah, it, it all those things really uh, aid quite a bit. Now, granted, there have been a lot of other photographs. Sure. Of, of Loch Ness and the monster. You, you just, every single time I say it, you're just going to shake your head, aren't you? Yeah. Um, you're, you're, if you keep saying it like that, I'm eventually going to believe in the monster. Or at the lake. You're at, working me towards that conclusion. The lake near Inverness, Scotland. <laughs> um, there have been a lot of photographs since then, but, uh, many of them are, none of them are conclusive, right? None of them yeah. are, are, 
convincing enough for you to say this is conclusive evidence that there is a monster living in that lake. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, uh, Nessie, you know, isn't the only purported lake monster. No, there's so many. Basically, every lake that people go to has a monster. Every body of water that's been around long enough has a monster in it. So uh, there's lake Champlain. Yeah. Champ and Lake Champlain. Uh, there's Ogopogo. And then there's all the other pogos that uh, are supposedly lake monsters. Uh, there are uh, there's Big Blue. If you watch X-Files. Uh, <laughs> did you remember that episode? With, no, uh, I never, I don't think I saw that one. Oh, it was, it was set in Georgia, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, Big Blue was the supposed lake monster living in North Georgia, um, a North Georgia lake. And then it is revealed. Well, there's a false reveal. Spoiler alert for anyone who's making their way through X-Files for the first time. There's, it's a, a false reveal that it's actually a giant alligator that was living in the lake. Never mind the fact that no giant alligator could ever live in a North Georgia lake. <laughs> Those lakes are freezing cold. It would never, uh, an alligator would never survive. But uh, at the very, very end of the episode, of course, Big Blue pops up out of the lake, unseen by anyone other than the viewer. So it's a little uh, okay. wink and a nod of, oh, there really is a monster. Well, they got to keep the mystery alive. Yeah. Well, even though they never go back to that lake ever again. But at right. any rate, um, yeah, there's lots of different lakes and rivers that supposedly have monsters in them. And this this is all over the world, obviously, not just we're focusing a lot on North America in this episode because uh, that's where we live. But there are all over the world stories of lake and river monsters. Okay, before we get to the tech, I think we should talk about one other big monster. Okay. Which also comes in many varieties. Like the lake monsters, you've got the large hairy humanoid. Yes. Bigfoot slash Sasquatch slash the skunk ape slash the swamp ape slash the yetis. Uh, how many other names are there for yeah, it? There's Yowie. I've got to say Yowie. Yeah. That's the Australian one. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're, these are essentially the, the large hairy ape-like creatures. Uh, generally, they tend to be described as uh, a missing link between the great apes and man. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of different varieties, but they all are basically hairy, arboreal critters. <laughs> I've seen it often referred to as the missing link between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, which yeah. means people don't even understand the common view on human descent, right. like that we didn't evolve from Neanderthals. Right. And even if we did, it seems like Bigfoot would have been a step back <laughs> based upon... He's pretty based hairy. Upon, yeah, pretty he's hairy. a pretty hairy guy. Well, um, I mean, it's almost suspicious the fact that this widely varying concept of monster really seems to coincide with what a human would look like in an ape suit. Yeah. It's, that's <laughs> almost, almost, uh, almost know, suspicious, almost suspicious. Yeah. You would, if you were, if you were a cynical type, you might say <laughs> that this was all based off of uh flim flam. Yeah. But okay. So tons of people have claimed to actually see these, to photograph them, to yeah. capture some kind of, some kind of empirical evidence. Of right. Them, right? And, and before I, before I go into kind of the, the dawn of the Bigfoot age here in North America, I have to ask you, are you, are you familiar with the term skunk ape? Were you personally familiar with that term? I, I'd read about it before. That's a Florida thing. Yeah, yeah, mostly Florida, North Carolina also. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was one of those things where I had heard about it as a kid. Now, I was born in the 70s. Uh, 1974 was when there was a rash of skunk ape sightings in Florida. <laughs> and for the longest time when I was a kid, I mean, I read about skunk apes, right? That was because I kept on checking out all the folklore books in my, right. my you Georgia. You were educating yourself. Right. 
So when I talk about skunk apes these days, people are, look at me like, what the heck are you talking about? I've never heard of such a thing. And it wasn't until I watched um, Rob Zombie's uh, House of a Thousand Corpses where there is a television news item going on in the background of one of the scenes where they're talking about a skunk ape where I thought, oh, thank goodness, I didn't just imagine that from my childhood. <laughs> There's validation. Well, to go to where the Bigfoot craze started here in North America... You got to look back at the infamous film that was made in 1967. That's the one everybody's seen with the loping thing looking back over its shoulder. Yeah, that the it's, one? yeah it's twists its torso to look back because yeah. looking back over its shoulder is being really generous. It, it turns its whole upper body around in order to look yeah. back and is loping through uh, woods in Northern California at a pretty rapid pace. And um, there are some people who proclaim that the movements made in that that film are those that a human could never make. There are others who say, we don't know what speed that film was shooting at. And that's very important because based on the film speed, uh, it may be that it's just like a human would move. But if the film was shot at a different speed, then it makes it look like it's something that a human would not be able to, uh, to ape. <laughs> <laughs> Pun intended. Uh, even without seeing it, that argument sounds specious to me. Yeah. Humans couldn't move like that. Well, 1967 was when this film was made, and it was uh, made by uh, Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson. Um, and they shot it in Bluff Creek in Northern California. And the interesting thing is that there are a lot of stories about this, how this, this film came to be made. Um, including stories that reveal at least some level of hoax. So there was a guy named Ray Wallace who passed away in 2002, who was something of a uh, prankster. Mm -hmm. He enjoyed a good prank now and then. And his son, Michael Wallace, says that his father had a woodcarver create a pair of 16-inch long feet out of wood that you would strap on to your to your own feet, so like giant sandals, essentially. Mm -hmm. And you could go tromping around wherever, making enormous tracks in the process. And his, his dad, Ray Wallace, owned a construction company that built logging roads in Northern California. So you had all these big roads with large equipment going back and forth across them, where there was ample opportunity to make some interesting tracks in the mud. Okay. Which is what he would do. He would occasionally make big old tracks near the, um, the equipment. You know, if the equipment shuts down for the day, he would put these things on, tromp around a bit. And then the next morning, the workers would come out and say, holy crap, look at these, these enormous footprints next to the, the bulldozer. What, what's going on here? And it started this kind of legend of a creature with enormous feet that lived in the Northern California woods. And Ray Wallace apparently just ate it up. He thought it was fantastic. Meanwhile, uh, he supposedly knew all about the actual, uh, filming of the, the Bigfoot creature by, uh, Patterson and Gimlin and even knew who was quote unquote inside the suit, but did not give it away. Now, Gimlin seems, at least for his part, to have been completely, uh, 100% believing that this was in fact a legitimate film. He was not, he was not as far as I know present when the filming was happening. That was Patterson who was there. Mm. Um, and the story was that Patterson had, uh, developed cancer and was looking for, you know, trying to raise money so that he could 
get treatment. The story is that this whole thing was orchestrated for his benefit, essentially, and that a North Carolina costumer made this costume, this Bigfoot costume, uh, mail order, uh, 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 made this for Patterson. Wow. Yeah. And that, uh, they even got a request about how to make it look taller. And the, the costumer had said, look, uh, use shoulder pads, like football shoulder pads to, to h- increase the height and use sticks in the arms to increase the, the arm length so that it looks like it's got longer arms than what a human would have. Um, now there are people who, who dispute that this story is in fact legitimate and that, you know, the people who are claiming this are doing so just to, you know, pull a prank of their own, saying that they're responsible for it. But most reputable sources that I could find have pretty much said, like, there's no reason to believe this wasn't a person in a suit. In fact, like Stan... This is Stan Winston, right? He's the 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 special effects guy. Yeah, Terminator. Yeah, he, he said... Yeah, that was not even a very good suit. <laughs> like, he said that would be maybe a few hundred dollars. Then when he was interviewed, he said that'd be a few hundred dollars today. When it was made, it was probably less than a thousand dollars, which was a lot of money back in those days, but still, uh, was something that was totally in the realm of possibility. But that's not the only giant Bigfoot story. There was one here in Georgia not too long ago. Oh, I remember this. Back there in were 2000, some guys yeah. claiming that I think they claimed they had a Bigfoot cadaver or in something. In a cooler, yeah. Yeah, yeah this was back in 2008. Uh, the Georgia Boys, as they are sometimes called, uh, Matt Witten and Rick Dyer, who had collaborated on a hoax uh, with another guy named Carmine Biscardi, who had uh, he had been a, like a promoter in Vegas for a while. And the, the three of them together really pushed this story to national prominence. And I don't so think, let me guess. It turned out it was really Bigfoot. No, right? no. Sadly, the, it was it was a, a actual Bigfoot costume. In fact, there were people who found the catalog item Bigfoot costume. It was a very good Bigfoot costume. You know, it wasn't like, you know, a super cheap party city gorilla suit or anything, but it was still a Bigfoot costume. Yeah. And it was one that could be identified as such. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was revealed as a hoax. Um, there, you know, they didn't make a huge amount of money. Uh, I believe Mar- Matt Witten was, had formerly been a, a sheriff deputy and hmm. no longer has that career be- as a result of this story. Um, Rick Dyer was like a used car salesman. And so this was like a rough story all around. I think Dyer actually went on to make another claim not too long ago. That was a, a similar Bigfoot claim, but you oh, know, it's kind of move on to, I've got a frozen chupacabra. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, he, he did not do that as far as I know, but um, at, at any rate, the Bigfoot evidence uh, is really more of a story of a lack of evidence than again, any sort of, definitive proof well i noticed that's a common thread in a lot of these uh cryptid searches is the the story of the evidence turns out to be a story of weird or debunked evidence yeah it's either fabricated or mistaken identity that kind of stuff but that doesn't mean people have stopped believing in fact this is huge if you go out just google search it look on the internet for people talking about their bigfoot sightings and and whether or not they believe in these lake monsters, it's all over the place. Well, the, it's, it doesn't seem to be going away at all. No, they took Journey's words to heart. They didn't stop <laughs> believing. Um, and so now I guess we should transition to talking about the role that technology plays in 
in people's search for these monsters. Sure. And whether advances in technology can or ever will affect the way people believe in them. Well, like, can can it just be that having better technology will finally dispel all of these beliefs about Bigfoot and the lake monsters? I think it'll make it harder to justify a belief in these things, but I don't think it's ever going to eliminate the belief in these things. Yeah, I feel like in some ways it could go both ways. So I think one of the first things we should talk about since it came up in both of these examples is Mm -hmm. camera technology. Yeah. So here's the thing. Camera technology has advanced dramatically. And I really mean dramatically. Right. I mean, it really has advanced. So you you can get a consumer model, just a regular off-the-shelf point-and-click camera that's going to have zoom features, image stabilization, low-light photography. If you're talking about a professional model camera, you know, the kind that you're spending a few thousand dollars for, you get even more incredible pictures, control, options, all these sort of things. Um, Stuff that you know, back in the day would have been unheard of. And today you have the option of incredible fidelity and resolution with your photos. Uh, and that's not just still photography. You know, your, your video cameras have gotten really high resolution. I mean, you, you could get a 2k or 4k camera and use that in your monster hunting techniques. And thus, if you capture anything, you're not going to have one of those murky photos, right? Right. Well, I mean, the photos and videos of Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, all that, they're always, I mean, it seems to me, always grainy, low res, blurred. It seems to me that not just as this professional stuff comes out, but as high quality photographic equipment is more widely disseminated among the population. You don't have to be a professional photographer to take high quality images now. You don't even have to plan ahead and take a camera with you. You probably have a very high quality camera in your phone. Yeah. There's a really good chance that you or someone with you does. It's so funny because, you know, you think about back in the day, like think about when America's Funniest Home Videos first came out. And you would ask yourself, why the heck would anyone be videotaping this particular moment that we're watching? How can this not be staged? Right. Right. Because back then, video cameras were not everywhere. You didn't have one on your phone just sitting in your pocket. So the fact that someone's actually videotaping something uh, usually meant that there was something there to be videotaped and you wouldn't have done it just for no reason. Um, yeah. Wow. How lucky that these guys had a video camera in the woods with them when they saw Bigfoot. Right. Now, these days, it would be very unusual to not have at least a few people with access to a camera. You're taking a big group out there. Somebody's got to, you know, somebody's going to be able to shoot this in 1080p. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. They'll be able to use the iPhone and put it in slow motion if they want. Yeah. Right. So you can see it in incredible detail with, uh, uh, you know, 200 frames a second. And in the next generation, I wonder if it's going to go even further. Like, oh, why didn't they get this in gigapixel? Uh, no, see, I think at this point, when you've got this level of, of, uh, fidelity already, the question you'd have to ask is, why is this so poor quality? Right. Yeah. If it's, if you're thinking everyone has access to, Something that's got at least like a six or eight megapixel camera in it. Well, 
Yeah, not everyone, but it, I mean, it, it's just common enough that it's going to be really frequent that if Bigfoot's walking around, he's frequently going to encounter people who have high quality video. Particularly recording. if you're talking about people who are actively looking for these creatures. Right. Right. We're not just talking about the people who would happen upon it, although that's a big issue there, too. Uh, it, we're talking about the folks who have made a career out of looking for these kind of creatures. They're obviously going to be relying upon technology that is going to have this level of detail because why wouldn't they it would it would be suspicious if they did not yeah if, if you're telling me like oh no i'm i, I only work in daguerreotype then i'd be thinking maybe maybe monster hunting isn't so legitimate but if mm -hmm. you're talking i'm going to use this high speed high resolution camera that works in low light levels uh, so that i can have the best chance of getting a really good image of this thing that i believe exists but we've never been able to capture it before that makes more sense um, and so, yeah, the fact that everyone has cameras, that, that kind of suggests to me that since we don't see a huge number or at least a significant number of pictures and videos of these kind of creatures, it obviously you can't prove a negative, but it, it certainly goes a long way to say, well, if there's not all this evidence, where are these critters? Yeah. Uh, another thing I would like to point out is the recent widespread dissemination of easy photo manipulation techniques. Yeah. So if you wanted to doctor a photo or make it look like an alien or a monster or a chupacabra, back in the day, this used to be a much more arcane and obscure art. People had their own, you know, photo manipulation techniques. A lot of times they'd involve these different kinds of art tools like ink and and paints and erasers and things like that. Now you've got 10 million people who have Adobe Photoshop. Yeah. Yeah. And some significant amount of those people have enough skill to manipulate pretty much any photo to look like something really weird is going on in it. And one of the funny things about this is I think this actually should be reason for an increase in skepticism, even though you're going to have probably even more weird photos, you know, a photo of a, of a megalodon jumping over the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. Because you can see stuff like that on the Internet all the time. I think the net result is that people are more skeptical when they're looking at a photo now. I think video is still probably the the go to for you know, people who are willing to, to hoax others because video is the perception is that video is much harder to fake than photographs. I guess it probably is harder. It definitely yeah. takes it definitely takes a set of skills that is beyond the average person. Right. At least you know, it's more work. Yeah, it's a lot more work. And uh, and to make it convincing, it requires uh, skills that most people just aren't familiar with. Of course, then again, uh, for reasons of just data storage and, and stuff like that, video is often lower resolution than still photographs. So maybe you could more easily fudge something on a video because the the photo, the still photo you'd be expecting should be high resolution. And you can take a kind of grainy image these days and get away with it. Well, maybe. But I mean, there are more and more high quality video cameras being uh, included with things like smartphones these yeah. days, too, like to the point where. Seeing a seeing a camera that's capable of capturing images like video in 2K is not that far off. So, well, if you take a video with my phone, I mean, there's probably going to be a Mothman in it. Yeah, that's that's fair. I, my phone, the camera quality has de degraded over time, and 
In fact, it would get to a point now where if I took a photo of a child's birthday party, you'd be pretty sure it would be a bunch of Sasquatches getting a, <laughs> gathering around a bonfire or something. So yeah, it's, um, but, but I think, you know, there are also people who are good at doing digital effects and, and doing them in a way that's subtle enough where it's not, uh, easy to just pick out. And we're seeing that with things like, like viral marketing campaigns too, where it's, you know, the whole purpose of it wasn't to fool people necessarily, or at least not indefinitely into believing that this creature exists, but was rather a promotional thing for something else. We've seen that happen a few times. Right. So yeah, while, while photos and videos can be faked, it does require a lot of work. And I think we're starting to see a little more skepticism in the general public. I mean, there are always going to be people who react very quickly to something that's presented as real. Like if you present something as real on Facebook, there's going to be a lot of reaction until someone finally says, Hey, wait, let's slow down and at, and apply some critical thinking here. But um, I don't, I, the fact that we don't see tons of this stuff is more of, again, evidence against their, them existing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, face value is more highly valued than we might expect. Yeah. So how about sonar? That's another one because yeah, you, you said a minute ago that you can't prove a negative. Right. I guess that's true in a certain way if you, if you make, uh, you know, exceptions for, well, maybe the monster is invisible. Right. And stuff like that. But barring that kind of thing, you sort of can prove a negative if you can exhaustively look for something in the only place you would expect to find it. And it's something that you should see if you look. So in other words, you're saying that if you were to take a confined area like a lake. Yeah. And you were to apply sonar, a very, a very thorough sonar, uh, uh, survey of this lake, and you were not to find any evidence of monsters in that lake, then you could pretty firmly say this monster doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, that's about as close to proof as you could want. Yeah. Unless you have people immediately claim that the lake has got underground caves connected to it that the monster lives in, which, by the way, is, again, one of the things you hear about Loch Ness. And, yeah, yeah. D- didn't um, they do this with Loch Ness? I thought I many heard times. somebody sonar scanned it and they said there's nothing there. There, Well, there are multiple sonar scans that have happened of the lake, and uh, some of them came back with stuff that was inconclusive. Like, they, they saw large shapes under the water and said, well, this might be debris, it might be an organism, it might be a school of fish. The point was it was always inconclusive. Yeah. And in fact, telling the difference between a school of fish and a large creature can be a little tricky depending upon the resolution of the the technology you're using. Mm -hmm. So as technology improved over time, we saw multiple scans of the lake happen over and over again, um, some of which were used as proof that there was a monster there, some of which was said, no, there's no monster there. The most recent one was done in 2003, and it was sponsored by the BBC. And I think the BBC would definitely prefer there to have been a monster. (laughs) (laughs) But the conclusion they came up with was that there was no monster in Loch Ness. They did a high-resolution scan of the lake and uh, didn't find anything mysterious or inexplicable and they they said they essentially scoured the lake from one end to the other and and did the effect of a a full net across the entire lake. I'm sure the local tourism board was not happy with them. For no, that. well then the 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 Nessie tourism has taken a bit of a hit over the last few couple of decades, maybe. Yeah, uh, it hit a it hit kind of a, a high note sometime in the 80s and 90s, and then has been declining ever since. Uh, they still you know have people come out there and. I mean, the lake is still lovely, but it's not necessarily a uh, a monster haven. Yeah. Um, uh, what about 
the way technology enables sort of a bird's eye view of the Earth. So satellite imagery, yeah. Um, that and, you know, like aerial photography. Sure. Um, again, we've got examples where people have said, look, there's nothing here to to support a claim of a, a cryptid living in this area. Then we have others that, you know, people have said anything that was remotely out of the ordinary was evidence that a cryptid lived there. Yeah. So... Uh, for one thing, uh, a lot of satellites don't have the the resolution to get down to a level where you'd be able to look at individual creatures. Yeah, I did wonder if this might apply to uh, like the people who believe, for example, that I think there's a belief that there's a dinosaur living in the Congo. Oh yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. If it's like a really large organism, yeah, that yeah, one maybe you'd expect to see that. At least one of those was a very obvious hoax. The the images were terrible but um i can't remember it was something rex was what they they called it but uh that was just one of those examples there's been multiple legends of that sort of thing but yeah there's not been any evidence of that kind of thing some people would just say well you know satellite images are made over time right it's not like it's a constant surveillance of the entire earth 24 7 you get images that are made as the satellite passes over the areas and then what you end up with the maps is a composite of all of these different images that are kind of stitched together. Oh. So it could just be that you're taking pictures everywhere where the dinosaur isn't. Well, that's a decent point. But. <laughs> yeah, it's also very convenient. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's possible. And then one of the things I think would be interesting is if monster hunters start using things like drones um, <laughs> with cameras on them. Well, because you think, like, if your argument is that the monster lives in some area that is difficult for people to access... Using something like a drone in order to get to areas that you normally would have a lot of difficulty getting to mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. You take away the risk factor of a human being putting themselves in a, a, a situation that could end in injury or death. Um, you know, you can get a high view of everything. Drones probably freak out a lot of critters, but, you know, you'd still be able to get a, a, a high level view of whatever area you were looking at. You know, it does seem to be a view very often among the the monster enthusiasts uh and I don't mean the fictional monster enthusiasts like us but the the people who really believe in these cryptids mm-hmm. that I don't know they're just not usually where people are you know it's just you're not likely to run across them uh for some reason it's there I don't know there's just something about them maybe I, I maybe the, having people there with cameras drives them away I think the I think I think people who exist Drive away the things that don't exist. I think that's where the problem <laughs> lies, but that's that's my own personal opinion. Yeah, well, one answer to that kind of belief might be the kind of automated visual cataloging of the world that's now going on because of things like Google Earth and Google Maps. Are you about to tell me that they found Bigfoot on Street View? Like <laughs> you're just, yeah. just zooming down Oxford Street <laughs> and they're, hey, look, it's Bigfoot. Uh, the, there have been all kinds of claims, and I think that it's interesting that this is going both ways. On one hand, it's like, well, I mean, we're taking all of these automated photos of places where nobody's there to look. So, you know, if Bigfoot's hanging around, we should see him pop up sometime. And then people come out and say, yeah, there he is. (laughs) (laughs) So I I don't know that anyway, there was one story, uh, the UK independent reported on November 1st, 2013, uh, that there was a YouTube video. Seriously, this was an article drawing attention to a YouTube video. Yeah, high journalism right here. Right. Uh, that had been posted a few days before. A user called Wow for Real. <laughs> That's three E's for yeah. real. That's how it's pronounced. Real. 
posted a video showing Google Street View for this deserted section of highway in British Columbia. That's in western Canada. Yeah. And the highway was running through a forest. And on one side of the road, in one particular frame of Street View, there appears to be a vaguely humanoid shape loping through the brush. Obviously, there he is. It's Bigfoot. I mean, yeah. what else could it be? John, John Lithgow's right next to him. They're reenacting <laughs> Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, to me, it looks like a shadow okay. of some kind, or maybe it's a particular angle on a tree stump. Could have also been like a bear, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> There are bears in Canada, by the way. I, to me, it's it's of the quality that it's more likely a shadow than a bear wow. to me. And yeah, so, so the level of quality goes, let me get this straight. For Bigfoot believers, level of quality goes... Bear, shadow, Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> That's just my my opinion. I okay. Mean, so, lots of people are looking at it like, yeah, obviously, there he is. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Anyway, All the, right. the YouTube video now, had, at the time, had like 30,000 views uh, from when I read this article from The Independent. The Mirror also, quote, reported it. Oh, Mirror. Um, now it has 220,000 views. Uh, there was another one, actually, where... Nessie showed up on Apple Maps. Okay. Was she in Loch Ness? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, er- that was a big that was a big if. <laughs> uh, earlier this year, Apple Maps apparently showed an aerial photo of Loch Ness that had this large, dark, almost catfish-like shape appearing in the water, uh, producing wake on either side. So waves were coming out. So from moving it. through the water is obviously not just stationary in the yeah, lake. Moving along the surface, it looked like. Too bad it was just a boat. Wah, wah. What it look what it looks like is that it looks like a boat where the boat has been removed and there's like this boat wake, but I've seen it compared to other photos of large boats in Loch Ness producing mm-hmm. wake, and the wake's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it might just be an angle where you can't see the boat very well. Right. So uh, so too bad it was just a boat. And too bad somebody was using Apple Maps. I mean, there's your problem right there. <laughs> that That is a problem. Uh, I don't know how many millions of people use that, but uh, here we have a series of vaudevillian musings <laughs> <laughs> on Loch Ness and the Apple Maps. Yep. Uh, so, did you hear the Loch Ness Monster recently appeared on Apple Maps? It took people a while to catch on because it was labeled as the Jersey Devil. When Apple Maps caught a glimpse of the Loch Ness Monster, many excited monster hunters rushed to the scene. Unfortunately, the ones who used Apple Maps navigation ended up on the runway at the Glasgow airport. That's another good one. Now, here's mine. Now, the Loch Ness Monster was, in fact, identified by Apple Maps in Lake Champlain. <laughs> or try asking Siri about where you can find the Loch Ness Monster. You'll be surprised. And so will I, because I don't have an iPhone. I don't know what would happen. <laughs> I could try with Google. I've got I've got a Google phone right here. If you, know, you want to find out what happens if I ask Google what I think where I can find Loch Ness. Nessie has not appeared on Google Earth as far as I know. Yeah. Uh but so anyway, that that looked like it was just a boat. So it's weird. It seems like on one hand, if we're getting a better and better view of more and more parts of the world, it should be sort of like opening the door into a dark room and eliminating the shadows. Yeah. I mean, shouldn't it? Like yeah. that you you're you're letting the light in, you're looking in more and more places. You're eliminating the places where these monsters could hide, but it just doesn't seem to be working. I mean, these examples we just showed, it seems like it's only opening up more and more avenues for people to find evidence of these monsters. And that sort of brings us to the question of 
why we hunt monsters. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't believe in any of these monsters, but I do love this stuff. It's lots of fun. Going back to the X-Files, I think it all hinges on that famous poster above Mulder's desk, I want to believe. Mm -hmm. Because it gives you this feeling like there's something magical or uh, unknown out there. And and the possibility of that is very enticing. Uh, and I totally get that. I mean, as a kid, like I said, I was fascinated by it. Same reason I was fascinated by dinosaurs, the idea of these enormous creatures that had far more power than, say, the evil parents who would make me go to bed at a reasonable hour did. And so there were there were these creatures that once were more powerful than my parents. <laughs> I wanted to believe. And in fact, that one, you know, we have evidence for it's actually those were real creatures. But to think that such a thing could still exist was very enticing. Um and I think there's a lot of that that's still around, this idea that it, it is kind of a more magical place with these creatures in existence. I would counter that, however, by saying that uh, we're using this amazing technology, these these scientific approaches, processes to learn more about our Earth. And the place is phenomenal. Like we're learning so much incredible stuff. We're encountering uh, species that we had never seen before that are are amazing legitimately amazing creatures. Uh, they are not the mystical monsters of lore, and maybe some people look on them as being less interesting for that reason. But to me, they are just as fascinating as the creatures that inhabit folktales from you know hundreds of years ago. But I think that we're always going to have this kind of curiosity and this desire for things that have yet to be discovered to be out there because we do like to discover things. We're curious people. Well, of course, there's a lot that is out there to discover and a lot of it's really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the real world is weird. Find, finding, I think it's about as weird as Bigfoot. Finding organisms that can survive in uh, uh, in incredibly toxic environments for humans like you know at the bottom of an ocean near a, a a crack in the earth where you're getting these incredibly hot jets of water coming out and there are creatures that can live in the chemicals of that that's phenomenal like that is something that if you told me as a kid i would have thought that's a science fiction story that couldn't be possible that couldn't possibly be true what about the tardigrades that can survive all kinds of radiation and live in empty space sure I mean, again, really amazing stuff. And, you know, some of the cryptids that are on the big long list are things like uh, types of dogs or cats, type, types of canines or felines that haven't been um, found. So, they, you know, they're, they, they've been talked about in, in stories or whatever, but there's never been any direct evidence for them. It may turn out that there are some parts of the world where we come across some of uh, some creatures of a of a significant size that we haven't encountered before, at least haven't classified before. Uh, that's a possibility. It's it's you know, of course, it gets less likely the more of the Earth we we explore, we find more and more of those, and the the number of of undiscovered creatures decreases over time. You know, I think the undiscovered dog variant that we're going to find, yeah, is Marmaduke. You think? <laughs> Is it Mar Marmaduke Wetherill? Because I, I, I'm pretty sure he passed away. But No, the main Marmaduke. Oh, you mean the, the enormous dog The real Marmaduke. Marmaduke. Gotcha. Well, if he looks exactly like the cartoon, he will be lovable. Uh, yeah, so this was a fun thing to, to kind of talk about, just this 
the 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 science and technology behind monster hunting and the psychology behind monster hunting. Uh, I'm glad that we were able to look into this and and to tie it into our other October slash Halloween type episodes. And uh, this is not the end, folks. We're going to have another Halloween episode uh, in the you know to to round out the experience. We're going to be looking at a famous fictional monster and asking whether or not such a fictional monster could ever become a real creature. But I don't one know. might wonder through a Frankenstein creation of science. <laughs> yeah, not to not to totally give away what the monster is. Okay, I, I'll tell you, it, it's critters. Um, no, <laughs> no, we're going to be talking about Frankenstein in a new, in an upcoming episode. So keep your ears out for that one. And guys, if you have any suggestions for episodes for forward thinking, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get away from the monster topic because now that Halloween is going to, uh, pass by, we're going to look at other issues. But if there's ever anything you're interested in hearing more about, write us, let us know. We've got plans for another really fun, wacky episode in the very near future that I think you guys are going to dig. Uh, but anything like if it from fusion power to nanotechnology, anything that interests you about the future, let us know. Send us an email. That address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook or Google Plus on Twitter and Google Plus. We are fwthinking. Just search for fwthinking and Facebook and we'll pop right up and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.